Our passage this morning comes from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and if you're using the Pew Bible, that is on page 571. Once you open there, you can just keep it open because we're just going to work straight through the text. This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to this text this morning, that you give us fresh eyes to see you, give us hearts that understand, give us humility to receive your word. Lord, as we need this text to show us who you are, I pray that you would erase distractions, allow us to focus on who you are. And Father, as we behold your holiness, Change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been with us for a little while, you know that usually on Sunday mornings, we work straight through, verse by verse, the book of Matthew. Uh, but this morning, as you can tell, we are changing it up a little bit. Instead of continuing our study in Matthew, we will be studying this, this passage in Isaiah. And although it is... A short passage, I think it has a lot of relevance to our time and to what we are going through as a people. As I've been studying it for the last few weeks in preparation, I've been encouraged meditating on this truth. And so I pray that as we study it together, it would provide you with the same encouragement. To begin this morning, I want to start out by just providing us with some context. I want to set the stage so we know what is going on in the book of Isaiah so that we can better understand God's word for us this morning. Our passage comes from the book of Isaiah, which is one of the prophets, one of the books of the prophet. It can be found in the Old Testament, and Isaiah is recorded by the prophet Isaiah himself. Isaiah was one of the prophets that lived in Israel 
during a time after, after King David, after King Solomon, and at a time when Israel had been split in two because of a civil war, Israel was now no, no longer one united country, but it had been broken into two parts. The northern kingdom of Israel, which is sometimes called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet to God's people in Judah. And while the northern kingdom, as we read in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, was almost always bad, king after king that refused to follow God, the southern kingdom of Judah had a different story. It had its ups and downs. There would be a good king that would follow God, and then a king that would rebel and turn away from God. And the role of the prophets, like Isaiah, was to speak God's truth to his people. They were the prophetic voices of the time, calling the people to repent, calling the people to turn back to God. The people, however, almost never listened. And things get worse and worse and worse until God prophesies the coming judgment. Because the people have hard hearts, God prophesies, which was what Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy, is that a foreign nation will come and take the people off into captivity. And so it is this time in Isaiah's ministry that he is called to speak to these people. It is before the exile, but in a time that's very dark in Israel's history. And so we see in chapters 1 through 5 in Isaiah, Isaiah is explaining and calling God's people to return. It's almost like a list of their sins. Again and again, the people hear God's word and then they refuse. They, they have hard hearts that won't follow God. And we see that God's people is like a vineyard. In, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah sings this song about a vineyard. And this vineyard is a picture of Israel. Isaiah sings that God created a beautiful vineyard. He gave it everything that it needed. He put it in the most fertile piece of land and provided for it. But then at the time when the harvest is ready, God comes and he finds that only sour grapes have been produced unusable grapes. And so what you see from chapter 1 through 5 is that God is vindicating himself. God has provided for his people. He has given them the prophets. He's brought them into the promised land, and yet the people are taking his blessings and responding with indifference. And so because of this, we see at the end of chapter 5, right before our text this morning, that God, speaking through Isaiah, calls out six woes on the people. These are six prophetic statements of the coming judgment that is coming for the people. If you were with us last week, you know what a woe is. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and he pronounces seven woes. These woes are a way of saying, what sorrow awaits you because of God's judgment that is coming? These woes are a way of saying that because of your sin, the righteous judgment of God is coming. 
And as we know from both Old Testament and history, we know that this coming judgment does eventually come. First, in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken away. Their, their kingdom is destroyed and they are taken off into exile. And then later, the southern kingdom is completely destroyed. The temple is ruined. And God's people are taken away into exile. So that is our scene for this morning. That is the context in which Isaiah is now going to get this vision from God. These are dark days in Isaiah's, in Isaiah's ministry as he sees this coming judgment. And he alone is called to bring God's word of truth. So as we look at our section this morning, we're going to break it up into three three different parts. In the first section, we will look at God upon his throne. In the second section, we will look at God's holiness. And then in the final section, we will look at God's salvation. So three sections to kind of help us this morning. So now that we have a little bit more context, I want to read again this first line so you can keep your Bibles open. It starts in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So just in this first sentence, Isaiah is setting up a theological truth that is incredibly important for us this morning. And oftentimes as I'm studying passages like this, especially Old Testament, I can kind of read through uh, names like King Uzziah, or I can overlook little references But this morning, we're going to take the time to look into what does this mean so we can get a bigger and more full context. John read for us the passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 26, which tells us the story of King Uzziah. And what Isaiah is doing by referencing in the year that King Uzziah died, he's able to bring to mind everything that would have been going on that year. With just one word, Isaiah is able to bring up the emotions, bring up all the things that would have gone with such a tumultuous year. For us in our context, it would almost be like if you wrote a letter to someone and you said, the year the pandemic hits is when I saw the Lord. Immediately, the person you're writing to feels the weight of that, can feel what you would have been going through, a time of uncertainty, time of confusion. That is what Isaiah is doing. He's bringing us back to this time and reminding us of who King Uzziah was. And as John read, we see that King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings that the southern kingdom ever had. While he wasn't a King David or a King Solomon, he for sure would have been in the top five kings of Judah. From a young age, we are told that he was mentored by a godly priest. He had someone that taught him the ways of God and and brought him up to lead faithfully. And under the leadership of King Uzziah, the kingdom prospered. God blessed his people. He began ruling at the age of 16, and he ruled for 52 years. And during this time, Israel was built up. The southern kingdom prospered. And you can just imagine a sense of security, having the same leader for 52 years. Isaiah 
probably was born during King Uzziah's reign. Uzziah was the king that he had known from birth. Although King Uzziah was a righteous king for a time, what we learn is that the people's hearts were slowly getting harder and harder and harder. King Uzziah actually would have been, for Israel, kind of the saving grace. It would have been as though there was a Christian president in the land or a conservative Supreme Court, something that, although the culture is getting worse, you can hold on hope that these things will hold back the tide of sin. Uzziah would have been greatly loved by all of his people, and especially Isaiah, who was following God and wanted to see his land prosper. But unfortunately, it doesn't end well. At the end of King Uzziah's life, he becomes proud. The success and blessing that God had given him, instead of becoming something that humbled him and turned him back to God, the success turned into pride. Instead of trusting God and growing in humility, what we see is that Uzziah oversteps his role as a king. He goes into the temple, a place where he's not allowed to make sacrifices. He's not allowed to burn incense, but in his pride, he goes into the temple to take the role of a priest. And he, he tries to burn incense before God. And as John read, the priests come in. They try to stop him. And in his pride, Uzziah gets angry. And we see Uzziah is struck with leprosy. And unfortunately, he, he lives out the rest of his days in exile. After living such a faithful life to God, Uzziah fails right at the end. He slips up right at the finish line. He brings shame and disgrace to his family, to his name, and to all of his people. And the story of Uzziah is a tragic one, but really it's a picture of what's happening in Judah at this time. Uzziah's story presents us with a picture of what is happening with the whole kingdom. Although God has blessed Judah, given them material blessings and prosperity, they've become proud. They've tried to take things that are not their own. They refuse to stay in the God-given boundaries that he's given them, and they rebel against God's good rule. They go after what their heart wants. And this is a picture of the whole situation. So after serving for 52 years, Uzziah dies in disgrace, judged by God. You can imagine how devastating this would have been for Isaiah the prophet. It would be similar to a close youth pastor or a mentor of yours that has helped you along the way, has guided you as you've grown up in your faith. And then at the end of his life, ruins his faith, commits a moral failure that embarrasses himself and his family. This would have been devastating. And now the only thing that was holding Israel back is gone. Moral decay is growing. God's judgment is coming soon. For Isaiah, these are dark days. And as we hear this story, 
it's hard not to think about our own situation. It's hard not to think about our own country and what we're going through. Although we haven't lost a king to leprosy, we have moved from a a country that acknowledged God, a country that was blessed by God and prospered, to a country that is running away from God. While God has blessed us materially, the people's hearts move farther and farther away from God. Far from just doing what is right, our country has begun promoting what is evil and calling that good, and is now actually trying to criminalize what is really good. It is during these times in Isaiah's life and in our life that we need a clear vision of God. And this is what this text provides us with. So as we have that context in our mind now, when we come to this passage, we can see the contrast that Isaiah is setting up for us. And we can understand it better. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. You see that contrast? While one king who reigned well and died in disgrace is gone, the true king is alive. While one king has ruined his reputation and embarrassed himself, the true king is still on his throne. What God is doing for Isaiah is pulling back the veil and showing us a reality that has never changed. This is a spiritual reality, and it's a reminder that God is still king. He is ruling and he is reigning even now. The true king will not pass away. The true king that Isaiah serves is still ruling, totally sovereign. This is a reminder that we need no matter what our eyes see. As we look to our culture, as we look around us, we need to be reminded that God is alive and he's on his throne. And Isaiah mentions the fact that God is seated on his throne. And this, again, this highlights God's sovereignty. This highlights God's total control. In this vision that God provides Isaiah, God is not in his throne room running around, He's not pacing up and down, wringing out his hands, wondering what he's going to do with such a wicked people, with a king that's failed. That's not the picture of God that we have, is it? God is seated on his throne. He is ruling. He is in total control. He is sovereignly controlling all things perfectly. And while Isaiah might be shaken because of what has happened to King Uzziah, the true king is calm. Human tragedies such as death, illness, or pandemics do not throw him off. He is still on his throne. And this is an important lesson that Isaiah needs to hear. As God is sending him out to be a prophetic witness to a stubborn, hard-hearted people, Isaiah needs to have a right understanding of God's authority. He needs to be able to faithfully follow God no matter the results. While kings come and go, his job is to remain faithful. As he serves God, he leaves the results up to the king. And as we keep reading, 
what we see is that not only is God on his throne, but that his throne is high and lifted up and that the train of his robe fills the temple. This, again, is highlighting an important contrast for us. While Uzziah, this earthly king, was destroyed because of his pride entering the temple, the true king sits on his throne inside the temple. This true king is both our high priest and a king. He is able to perform both the functions for us. And this is a clear foreshadow of the Messiah that would come. We are told in the New Testament that Jesus is the king after the order of Melchizedek. He is both our king and our high priest. And through that, he is able to not only offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, but also be our savior. So as we examine this first passage, and we've seen how God reveals himself to Isaiah as a sovereign king who never dies, we need to ask the question, is that really how we view God? Is that really the God that we're praying to? As you see things in your life getting worse and worse, maybe in your own home, maybe in your own life or in the culture, are you trusting in a God that is seated on his throne? Or have you allowed the circumstances around you to tempt you into changing your view of God? While it can be easy to know the correct theological answer, it's important to ask ourselves, do we see God as Isaiah saw God? As Christians, today we desperately need this passage. As we look around, we see the world getting worse and worse. And what is going to keep us faithful? It's not a God that, that just loves us and he's, he's doing his best to hold back sin. It's not a God that's kind, but kind of distant, we need to see God on his throne. We need to know that no matter what happens, God will accomplish all of his purposes. This is the God that we serve. No matter what we see, God is in control. And this is a big part of why we gather together. When we come together on a Sunday morning, we come to remind each other of who God is. We come to sing and to, to hear God's word preached. To remind each other that he is king. He is God. And we are not. When we see the world around us, we're tempted to doubt. When we see our own weakness, we're tempted to give up. But together, together we can see God. We can remind each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds. I want to challenge you to trust God with every aspect of your life. He is perfectly in control. He will not bring shame upon those who follow him. He is faithful and he will remain faithful. This is an important truth for all of us. And especially 
as we go out and try to share God's words with others. I know for me, personally, so many weeks I am tempted to just give up and to quit. As I work with the youth and I work with college students, I'm tempted to just call it quits. And the reason is because I'm tempted to to think that sin is more powerful than God. As I see people struggling, as I see people's hard hearts, I'm tempted to think that, that maybe God's not powerful enough. That maybe addiction is too hard for him to handle. I'm thinking that, I'm tempted to think that maybe God, while he can reach these people, he can't reach those people. I'm tempted to give up. But I'm grateful for passages like these that remind us of who God is. I'm grateful for a church that reminds me of who God is and that he is sovereign. That it's not up to me. That I don't have to convince someone to become a Christian. I don't have to try to pull someone away from their addiction. God is sovereign. He is working. He will accomplish all of his purposes. He doesn't need me. And when I remember that, I'm challenged to continue to keep going, to not give up. We need God's word and we need our brothers and sisters around us. God is king. He is on his throne and we can worship him. As we move into our second section, this section is focused on the holiness of God. We'll continue to reading in verse 2. Isaiah writes, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So in this in the second section, we now see God is holy. While the first section highlighted that God is still on his throne, the second section is about God's holiness. We first see this in the seraphim. The seraphim are described as these type of angels that would be flying around God's throne day and night, calling out his praises. And these seraphim are unique. They're actually only mentioned here in this passage in the whole Bible. But they're also unique in that these are God's throne room attendants. Day and night, they hover, ready to be sent wherever God has them. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. The word seraphim actually means burning ones. So you can imagine that as God is on his throne, these seraphs are flying around, probably completely covered in fire. So God's throne is surrounded by these flames. And this represents God's absolute holiness. Just as God's holiness is represented in a fire when he comes to Moses, or when he comes down on the Mount Sinai, again, we see that fire represents God's holiness. And what's interesting 
is to see is that even their posture, even these, even these creatures who are before God all day have a posture of humility. They cover their eyes and they cover their feet because they, they can't look at God's holiness. Even these creatures who are not like us, these creatures are sinless. And yet because they are still part of the creation and they are not the creator, they have respect and they cover their face. One commentator that I was reading on this passage says it this way. What is amazing is that these beings are themselves holy in the sense of being perfectly pure from evil. But the Lord is holy because he is separate, not only from evil, but from them and from every other created being. The seraphim, even though they are holy, they show that there is a huge gap between what is created and the creator. God is absolutely holy. He is the unique creator and sustainer of the world. And sometimes I think, since we talk about being made in God's image, we get this idea that, well, God is like us. No. God is not just a little bigger, a little stronger, a little smarter version of ourselves. God is the Holy One. He is the creator. He is far above us. His holiness is like the sun. Our likeness is that sometimes the sun makes us warm. God's holiness is so above us that it's dangerous. If someone were to look at God's holiness in an improper way, they would be killed. Something else that God's holiness means is that he is separate from us. As the creator, if everything else in this world were to stop, God would continue to exist. He is removed from us. He doesn't need us. He's totally self-sufficient. That's what makes him God. Now think about that in comparison to everything else we know. Everything that is created relies on something else. Everything relies on something else to keep it going. Even the world's strongest leader will grow weak and die if just cut off from water for a few days. He will die sooner than that if cut off from air. As humans, we are so needy. We are so weak. No matter what we like to tell ourselves, we are incredibly dependent on God sustaining us for our breath, for our food, for everything. As I've been studying this text, I've been more and more aware of my neediness as I'll take breaks to go get food. <laughs> I, get, I get tired as I practice. I'm aware that I am not God. If I were only just to preach for too long today without giving you a snack break or a coffee break, all of us would melt. We would fall apart. We would get so hangry, we would feel like the world is coming apart. And yet God is different. Colossians tells us that he is before all things and that in him all things hold together. That is God's holiness. Isaiah continues to talk about it later in the book of Isaiah in 
in the later in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40. And we read this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. What a beautiful passage. God's holiness means that he is set apart. He is totally above us. He is absolutely perfect. And this is why, as we read the seraphim, cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His holiness is beyond their ability to describe with words. It's beyond our understanding. By repeating the word over and over again, what they're doing is giving it the greatest possible emphasis. This would be like when someone texts you and then adds a hundred exclamation marks. It's to say that this is incredibly important. We see in, in the languages of the Bible that if something is repeated once, it's important. But in all of Scripture, the only thing that is to be repeated three times is God's holiness. Jesus, as he's teaching, will say, truly, truly, I say to you, to emphasize the trustworthiness. But when it comes to describing God, the best we can do is say, holy, holy, holy. More than anything else, we need to know that the king that sits on his throne is holy. And this is what Isaiah needed to hear. With the evil and the corruption around him, Isaiah needed to know that God was perfectly holy. The moral corruption of his time had not infected his God. His God is different. He's set apart. But what we see is that even though this is exactly what Isaiah needed to hear, this is exactly what he needed to be reminded of, God's holiness was too much for him to stand before. Like standing directly before the sun, Isaiah knew he was in trouble. We pick up in verse 5 in Isaiah's response. He says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. After Isaiah sees God's holiness, he does exactly what anyone else would do when they see God face to face. He pronounces a curse on himself and confesses that he is absolutely wretched. For the first time, probably in Isaiah's ministry, he sees God's holiness clearly. God's holiness exposes all of his sin. You see, before Isaiah comes to this place, of seeing God's holiness. Just like you and me, he, he was probably tempted into thinking that he was a pretty good person. After all, he lived in the midst of a people that were, were sinning and bringing God's wrath upon them. In chapter 5, we see that Isaiah is the one calling woes on them. God is using Isaiah to speak truth to his people. 
But something changes in chapter 6. Now Isaiah is the one calling down a woe upon himself. In this single moment, Isaiah realizes that he is no different than the people he lives with. He sees God's holiness clearly and understands the truth about himself. He understands that there's not different levels of people. That some people are good enough to be in God's presence and some are not. He simply realizes that God is holy and there's everyone else. And remember that Isaiah was a godly man. He was a prophet. When he opened his mouth, God spoke through him. But in that moment, Isaiah realizes that his good deeds are like filthy rags. Compared to God, he is just as the people around him. In that moment, Isaiah realizes what all of us will realize one day. He realizes the truth that when we stand before God, we will not be judged based on how we did compared to others. We will not be judged on a curve. We will be judged on God's perfect standard of holiness. That is a sobering thought. As I go to SDSU to talk with college students, I often hear them saying, well, when I get to heaven, I'll explain to God why I did this and that. When I get to heaven, I'll justify and God and I can work things out. What they don't understand is that when they get to heaven, they will be absolutely silent before God's holiness. We think as arrogant humans that we can somehow justify our sin before a perfectly holy God. But when we see him, we will know that without Christ's atoning work on our behalf, each of us stands rightfully condemned. It is only through seeing God's holiness in this way that we can see our own desperate need for a Savior. So let me ask a question. Have you come to see God's holiness in this way? Have you allowed God to reveal your sin so that you know without a doubt you are guilty before him? Or have you, like many in our culture, believed the lie that we are generally good people? We just need a few changes. You see, what our culture does is it rejects God, and so it holds up man as morally good. When you, when you reject God, you elevate humans. And our culture tells us that we don't need good news. Our, te- our culture tells us that we should have a good self-image. That we shouldn't walk around telling ourselves that we're bad people. Our culture tells us that we just need a therapist. And then we just need a few tools to manage our anger and our anxiety. But the message of the Bible is vastly different. The message of the Bible is that before a holy God, all of us are desperately sinful. And we are in need of not a few exterior changes. We are in need of a heart change. Our very core has been corrupted. We need God to make us new from the inside out. 
God's holiness shows us that we fall desperately short of his glory. As we see God's holiness, we see our own need. And as we do this, we come to Christ. We realize that he is the only way for us to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is is not someone who's fixed themselves, but someone who's come to Jesus to accomplish their righteousness for them. Someone who's given up trying to earn their righteousness on their own behalf. We look to Jesus who accomplished the law perfectly and we trust in him. Through Christ's work, we can be made new. We can be given new hearts. But before we start thinking that God's holiness is just for those out there that don't believe in God, we need to be reminded that God's holiness is for Christians as well. We need to be reminded that we serve a holy God And as he's adopted us in as his sons and daughters, he calls us to live holy lives. He's called us to be holy. And yes, we are going to fail. Yes, we are going to mess up. But we don't change the standard to what he's calling us to. We don't look at the sinfulness around us and the sinfulness in our own lives lives, and decide God's holiness That bar that he set for us is too high. So I'm just going to lower it. I'm going to change what it means to be a Christian. We need to recognize God's standard and in humility ask for God to give us the strength to walk accordingly. We need to recognize that on our own power, this is impossible. But as God saves us and fills us with his spirit, he can empower us to walk the Christian life. It is only through God's spirit. It is only through his power alive in us that we can live the holy life that we are called to. And so the challenge for us as Christians is to live holy lives. To let the spirit empower us. To put to death the sin that clings. Don't let God's grace be a cheap grace that allows you to continue in your sin. Instead, pray that God would give you the strength to fight it, to live as his ambassador. Pray that God would work through you to live a holy life. In our third section now, we work, we're working our way through the passage, and we come to this last section in verse 6. We've seen that God is on his throne. We've seen that God is absolutely holy. And now we we come to verse 6. We read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. This last section starts with Isaiah standing in absolute despair. He has seen God's holiness and he knows that righteous judgment is coming for him. But just as he is thinking, woe is me, one of the seraphim flies to him 
and touches his mouth with a burning coal that has been taken from the altar. He is told that his guilt is removed and his sin has been atoned for. Notice what is taking place here. God is providing a way for Isaiah to have his sins atoned for. Isaiah isn't doing anything except calling down a curse on himself. God initiates and is totally responsible for Isaiah's purification. He does this through taking a coal, take a burning coal that is taken from the altar and touching it to Isaiah's lips. The same lips that Isaiah said are sinful. So the altar here represents the place where sins are atoned for. This is the place where animal, animal sacrifice would have been made. And this coal that is taken by a seraph and brought to Isaiah and touched his lips is representing God applying that atonement to Isaiah. Together, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It demonstrates that God himself provides a way for purification. And what's interesting in this passage is that Isaiah, while he knows what is happening, he doesn't understand all of it. He knows that this coal has been touched to his lips and that he's been told that his guilt is removed and his sin atoned for. But what he doesn't understand is how is this possible? But since we have the New Testament, we understand what Isaiah doesn't understand. We can see more of what's going on here. We know that Isaiah's sins are not just being erased. Isaiah's sins are being removed by Jesus' sacrifice that would come 400 years in the future. We know that his sins are placed on Jesus because everyone who is ever forgiven by God is forgiven on the basis of Jesus' sacrificing work on the cross. This is how God can remain completely just and the one that justifies all sinners. All believers, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, are forgiven by Jesus, by his sacrifice in our place. Jesus' sacrifice took away Isaiah's sins, and it's the same sacrifice that can take away our sins. While we... 2,000 years after the cross, we look back to the work that Jesus did. Isaiah and the people in the Old Testament, they looked forward. They looked forward to the promise that one day a suffering servant would come. A suffering servant would be pierced for their transgressions. He would be crushed for their iniquities so that through his wounds, they would be healed. As it says in Isaiah 53. So what we see is that salvation from start to finish is a work of God. Isaiah can't take any credit for this. He has had grace shown to him. The only thing that Isaiah can boast about is his sin. All glory goes to God for accomplishing his salvation. Isaiah understands this, and I think this is why we see in this last section that Isaiah responds to God's call in the way that he does. Isaiah knows that his, get, 
that the gift of salvation is not something that he earned. It's not something that he worked for. He realizes that it was a gift from God. So when Isaiah has been purified, he hears the word of God. He hears God calling out, who will go for us? And immediately, Isaiah responds with, here I am, send me. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. While we are not saved by our works, a true believer who has understood God's overwhelming grace in their life will produce willing obedience. So we see that God, from start to finish, accomplishes salvation. He takes responsibility for it. And this is especially true as we continue reading the whole Bible. In the Gospel of John, we get insight into this passage in Isaiah. John chapter 12 tells us that the king that Isaiah sees on his throne is actually Jesus. Jesus is the one seated on the throne. Isaiah has the privilege of seeing a pre-incarnate Jesus seated on his throne in heaven. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Holy One that we worship. He is the one that the seraphim can't even look at. That is the King that we serve. And so what that means for us today as we close is that we serve a king who humbled himself, took on our sin to accomplish our salvation. We serve a king who is all-powerful, all-holy, and yet loves us. Jesus is our king. He is the one that we serve. We can trust him fully and worship him with our whole lives. Let's pray.